0: Cause you are my God and you save my soul.
1: Father, I I need you right now, as we sang just moments ago. We need you, I pray, for uh, receptive ground among the the hearers today. And God, thank you for uh, the work that you've allowed me to do this week to prepare for this message. What a joy it's been to dive into your word and now to to bring that word to uh, the congregation today. So I pray for this time. Might your word be exalted. Might it cleanse us might through the scriptures we see you Lord Jesus and we pray all of this that it would bless us and that it would bring you glory pray for these things in your name Jesus Christ amen well um we live in an interesting time in history for us not for God but we live in an interesting time in the song we just sang you heard the word nation our nation is certainly without a doubt at war with itself, recently there's been ploys of different things that that come about. There's there's political divisions. Uh, this nation is filled with filled by and fraught with racial tension, race theory, splintered communities, broken homes. You name it; it's going on here. And the mantra that we're fed is that the world needs peace. If we can somehow attain peace, the world will be all good. If he's getting your corner, I'll get mine. If you have your beliefs, I have mine. If my beliefs are crazy, it's okay. If they affect you, it's okay as long as we're at peace. As long as we don't say anything to each other. As long as we're fine. But to have peace, here's the thing, you have to have oneness. Multiple hearts have to have the same convictions the same alignments, to have oneness. And oneness is what you have to have to have peace. All the world can offer us, though, is a superficial peace. The world can draw hostility away from a situation just for a little while, and then inevitably it will come back. And you'll have to pick up your weapons again and battle. Peace can be faked in many different realms. We see this in many different ways. Social justice warriors, in marriages, friends at work, even churches fake peace. Churches can have these massive, massive programs and look so good on the outside. But on the inside, it's filled with strife and division. Saddest part of that is churches ought to know better that peace does not come about from any superficial thing, anything physical on the outside. The battle for peace is so important and it's so much more than physical. It's spiritual. This battle is fought on a spiritual front. Peace is a spiritual issue. I I was recently asked to be on a community uh, or on a school board as a community advisor and to, to give input into that school system in order to better that school system. And I remember just being at the school system and listening to everything and all of it was good. All of it was good. How can we get parents more involved? How can we get kids behaving better? How can we bring up grades? All of these things are brought up. And the thing is, is there was no acknowledgement that a lot of the problems we see are spiritual. It was all, what can we do? What can we deploy to make things better? What band-aid can we put on this? What programs can we put in place? The world can snuff out... One fire and then another one pops up. It's all superficial. All of it's superficial. But the Bible Bible has an answer to peace. It has an answer how to obtain oneness. And all this in mind makes today's passage so much more interesting and relevant. We've covered a lot of ground in the book of Acts so far. But an important issue still remains. The spreading of the gospel to the nations outside of the Jews. And the author of Acts writes into this, Luke writes into the apex of the biggest ethical, ethnic issue that the world and divide that the world has ever known. The issue between Jews and Gentiles. Luke is going to put before us and give an account to how God reconciles and breaks down the walls that are between the Jews and the Gentiles. This is why the account just before this one, we see the conversion of Paul, who is indeed a vital instrument by God and is the chief apostle to the Gentiles. But ironically enough, it's not Paul that God uses to break down the walls and open the door. It's the one who is referred to the chief apostle of the Jews. It was that. Peter, as you'll see, Peter has to go through some growing pains to get the gospel to the Gentiles. And interesting enough, what God shows us today is that the issues we see today aren't resolved by any worldly means. Get this, it has nothing to do with any system legislation, education, or regulation that the world has to offer but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ and the transforming power that takes place, in our, takes place in our lives after we are saved and the Holy Spirit comes in to play. So with that, let's look at Acts chapter 9, verse 32. We'll start there. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Hope to see some little girls named Dorcas at our next baby dedication. In this passage, Peter is doing what he's supposed to do. He was traveling from here to there, visiting different towns. Many of the disciples had remained in Jerusalem. I think wrongly. Jesus had given the command to what? Go and make disciples of all nations and into the world with the gospel. But they were entrenched in Jerusalem. Peter, at least, was not making that mistake. He was the chief apostle to the Jews, so he was, doing, he was going around visiting various com- Jewish communities and into which the gospel had spread. He's already been to Samaria. Now he's making his way northwest to the coastline, which is where Philip, if you remember, had been. This was fairly on in the early church, but already there were churches there. We see this in the text because it's not just an isolated individual that Peter visits. Notice the wording. But a group of believers, they knew one another, prayed for one another, and were working together. In his capacity as the chief apostle to the Jews, Peter was checking up on these communities. Community number one, Lydda. And what happened there was the healing of Aeneas. Community number one that he visited was Lydda. And what happened there was the healing of Aeneas. The first place Peter visited was Lydda, also known today as Lod. Here, there was a paralyzed man named Aeneas. He'd been confined to bed for how many years? Eight years. Could you imagine? Peter addressed him in the name of Jesus in verse 34, saying, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Notice here, That Peter doesn't take credit for this miracle. And it's not by his own power. If I didn't mention it earlier, what we see here in these passages leading up to chapter 10 is Peter walking in the steps and power of the Lord. An incredible thing. Peter doesn't take credit for this miracle and it's not by his own power. He says, rise in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not me doing this, it's Jesus. Peter is pointing toward his master. He's not pointing people toward him. This healing was an echo of Jesus' healing of the per- paralytic man early in his ministry. One of the coolest parables that you can read. In Mark chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus says these words, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Peter is paralleling his master. He remembers what Jesus said, and he is saying the same thing in, this, in the situation that he's in. Community number two that Peter visited was Joppa, the community of Joppa. And here we see the raising of Dorcas. A longer narrative here that tells the story of a woman named Dorcas. She dies and is brought back to life. Joppa was a Jewish community. That's why Peter would have gone there. You'll notice that Dorcas's body wasn't buried immediately after she died. This is because inside the city limits of inside the limits of Jerusalem, a person after they died had to be buried immediately. But beyond Jerusalem, the normal time that a body was buried was three days. And in that time period, those who knew Dorcas sent for her. I mean, sent for Peter. And they undoubtedly expected him to do a miracle. In verse 38, you can see that. They Since Little was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come without delay. The people of Joppa saw Peter as their leader. They knew he was truly an apostle of God. And God used him in divine ways. As does the earlier story about Aeneas, there are parallels in this story to things Jesus had done. The obvious one is in John 11. The raising of Lazarus. Perhaps when Peter arrived at this situation though, he remembers and was reminded of what happened in Mark 5 where Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus. Jesus put all the people outside. He took the little girl by the hand and said, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Peter here was following in the steps of Jesus. He put all the people outside. He knelt down in prayer, turned to the woman, and said, Tabitha, arise. Peter had faith in God. He had utmost confidence that God would heal this lady. He followed in the footsteps of Jesus. Some reflections from this passage, what we've read, Acts 9, 32 through 43. First of all, we see the growth of Peter. First thing we see is the growth of Peter. Peter is not remaining idle. He hasn't fallen away from Christ now that Christ has ascended. He is growing as a disciple. And we see that the same Spirit was working in Peter as had worked in Jesus Christ. The same Spirit was working in Peter as had worked in Jesus Christ. And for just a moment, I want to take us through how amazing it is that God used Peter. Peter was such an unlikely person to be used by God in such a great way. I think back to some of the major moments in Peter's life thus far. But it's interesting to see, though, Jesus knew and always had an amazing plan for Peter. In uh, Matthew 16, 19, Jesus told Peter he was going to give him the keys to the kingdom. Read more about that in the next chapter. But here's one milestone in Peter's ministry, Peter's calling. What was he before he came to be a follower of Christ? He was a fisherman. But it's not that we—it's not what we are or where we come from that's important. It's what God makes of us. That's how we can relate to Peter in this. Listen to these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Then there's Peter's great confession in Matthew chapter 16, 13 through 20. One moment Jesus asked Peter who he was. Peter instantly responds, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then in Matthew 16, 21-23, the tables turn. Jesus explains that he would have to go to Jerusalem, suffer and die, and then rise again. And Peter rebuked Jesus. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Jesus turned to Peter at that moment and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You're setting your mind on the things of man, not God. Man, if someone said that, it would probably hurt. But Peter persevered but Jesus was right in the things that he said Peter needed that truth at that time and Peter grew from that truth what a day one moment he was the vehicle of God's revelation the very next a vehicle for Satan we can all identify with that we can all identify with that then there's Peter's denial then there's Peter's race to the tomb then there was Peter's recommissioning You remember that Jesus appeared to the disciples while they were fishing in Galilee. Peter jumps out of the boat to meet Jesus on the shore. And Jesus used this occasion to recommission Peter three different times. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Peter responded. Then it repeats. Jesus asked that question again. Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. A third time, Jesus repeats, Peter was hurt at this moment, the Scriptures tell us. But he answered, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. What did Jesus say each time Peter answered? Peter, feed my sheep. Then feed my sheep. Then feed my sheep. And later, he says, you must follow me. You cannot deny me, You must follow me. And this is what Peter was doing in this chapter we are studying. He was following Jesus. He was doing exactly what Jesus had been doing. May we take note of that. Peter was doing three things. He was serving the same way as Jesus. Peter was serving the same way as Jesus. Peter wasn't just doing what he wanted to do. He was following the commands of Christ. He was being the chief apostle to the Jews, checking up on various communities, making sure they knew the gospel and were good. He was being the shepherd to them. He was feeding the sheep. The next thing is that he was preaching the same message. Peter was preaching the same message that Jesus preached. He wasn't just going around telling everybody what he wanted them to know. He wasn't just saying, hey, I'm Peter, chief apostle. Listen to me. It will be good for you. No, he does everything he does in the name of Jesus. And he preaches the same message that Jesus preached. Thirdly, he was demonstrating the same character as Jesus. Peter was demonstrating the same character as Jesus. Peter was remaining an uphold disciple. He wasn't being Living a double life. He was being like Jesus. Demonstrating the same character. How important it is for you and I to observe these things. Secondly, the gospel spreads. Christianity was spreading. But how? Well, it's like perfume. If you take the top off, it's going to eventually seep into the room and leak out into the room. And the aroma of that perfume, that open bottle, will fill the room. It's true doctrine. It's the sweet and gracious message that a loving God sent His Son to die for our salvation. A message like this can't be bottled up. And if it is bottled up in our church, in a church, that means that that church and the people do not really understand it and they probably haven't entered into it. The gospel cannot be bottled up. These people had come into the gospel. They had heard the gospel. And what was happening? happening? It was spreading like wildfire. Thirdly, the gospel is practical. The gospel is practical. I draw this point from the life of Dorcas, our beloved Dorcas. I, did, I do have a little girl due in July, and I did ask my wife, but I, was, I received a firm no with the name Dorcas. Dorcas had been so doing so many good deeds that many people were weeping and crying because they had lost her. She was a valuable Christian as, and a valuable human being. Did you get that? She was a valuable Christian and she was a valuable human being. Perhaps you've heard this quote. They were so heavenly minded they were no good for earthly things. They were so heavenly minded that they were no good for earthly things. The problem with that quote is it places a negative light on heavenly and it places a positive light on earthly. Here is what it actually, what it actually should be. When you are heavenly minded, you cannot help. You cannot help but be good at earthly things and do good earthly things. I believe a a Christian can't escape being practical in different areas or callings in life. But a non-Christian can. A Christian will be effective in this life. And they will advance this life for the good. A non-Christian, though, can slip away and not advance this world for good. Once a Christian turns away from their sin and responds to Jesus Christ in saving faith, they they are then called to serve others also before christ think about this there were no hospitals there were no hospitals before christ there were no orphanages no compassion organizations no humanitarian care it wasn't until jesus came that people actually started caring for people who had leprosy there was no disaster relief organizations people weren't taking up offerings and sending them to another place And there were not even great schools. There was education, but not great schools that actually cared about people who couldn't afford them and who weren't privileged as some were. Christ changed everything in this world. And when Christians went into the world, this world became better. Dorcas made an impact in this world. People were weeping over her. She was a godly woman to many Widow. She invested her life into widows. She made robes and clothes for them and other people. It's Christians who have gone into the cities of the world and have hunted out the poor, the young, the sick, the uneducated, and have brought them into schools to train them and give them skills that enable them to be something other than destiny would seem to have chosen for them. We see this play out in the very next, next chapter as Peter goes to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So now we flip or go to our Bibles in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And we're going to be looking uh, in awe at the first 35 verses of chapter 10. Don't worry, we're going to have to do some summarizing. We won't read all of them. But we'll get through them and we'll understand them together. This account is of much importance. These 35 verses. As it takes up the next 66 verses. So we are just covering a portion of this account. In fact, this narrative, what happens here, is repeated three different occasions in the book of Acts. And you won't, we won't finish this account until next chapter, chapter 11. In these verses, God divinely intervenes through the visions of Cornelius and Peter and initiates a forward movement to advance the gospel to the Gentiles. Let's look at Acts chapter 10. And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Here we have vision number one in this passage Cornelius the Gentile is who the vision comes to vision number one Cornelius the Gentile and it's in this passage that Cornelius's heart is prepare is being prepared for the message of the gospel Cornelius is going to be the hearer of the gospel and God had to prepare him for that message. Who is Cornelius? He's a Roman, a centurion, a commander of 100 men in the Roman army. It seems like all the centurions we're introduced to in the Bible are pretty good guys. Jesus praises a centurion in Matthew chapter 8 verse 10 saying, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Cornelius followed in this man's path. In a positive sense, Cornelius was a God-fearer. This meant that he acknowledged Jehovah as the one true God. But in a negative sense, he had not fully become a Jew by circumcision. From the Jewish perspective, he was on the right religious track. Nevertheless, it was improper for Jews to associate with him socially because he was a Gentile. Jews saw Gentiles as un clean people this raises an interesting question for us though doesn't it i don't know if your mind went here but here's where my mind went in studying this passage this raises the question and the point to ponder cornelius was devout he was a god-fearer active in his piety giving to those in need and prayed to god regularly was cornelius a saved man Was Cornelius saved? Think about it. Did he know the Lord in a saving sense? No. No. He didn't. Why? Because, listen to this, religion doesn't save us and commend us before God. Religion doesn't does not save you and me, nor does it make us any more presentable to God. Cornelius was a God-fearing man. He was religious, but he had no knowledge of Jesus Christ. He was ignorant of Him. Here's where we draw this from. If you go ahead to Acts 11.14, Peter is repeating this account, this story. Here's what he says. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. There it is. Cornelius wasn't saved. Cornelius had not heard the gospel. And because of it, there was an inclination in his heart. Get this. There was an inclination in in his heart that he could work and be religious to be saved if that inclination is there in any capacity yes we are humans and we can have that capacity but that is not what saves us it is only by the blood-bought saving work of Jesus Christ that saves you and me but I'll tell you this the Holy Spirit had indeed began to work in Cornelius. And he was invoking saving work in Cornelius. Cornelius wasn't satisfied with Gentile paganism. He had turned to the one true God. He was doing what he could with the capacity that he had. And I believe with all my heart that when a person does with the capacity that they have, God will reach down to them and give them salvation. Salvation. Jeremiah 29 13 says that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. At this point in his faith journey, Cornelius needed to know more about the God of Israel and he needed to hear the gospel. And that's what we saw happen in this vision. God was preparing the heart of the hearer. In this case, it was Cornelius. And yes, good news. Cornelius goes on to hear the salvation message and gets saved. Amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Had he not, had he not, and this is what makes this passage today so personal for us, perhaps none of us would be here. I would guarantee most of us, if not all of us, are not from Jewish descent. We are all Gentiles. Now we move on to Acts chapter 10 verse 9. and We're going to read the account of Peter's vision. The next day as they were on their journey, this was Cornelius' men, and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. That's a trend with Peter. And the thing was taken up at once. to heaven. Here we have vision number two. And it happens to Peter, the Jew. That rhymes. Vision number two, Peter, the Jew. In this passage, Peter is being prepared... For his task as the messenger to bring the gospel to the Gentile nation. We learned earlier that Cornelius needed preparation as the hearer, and most certainly Peter needed preparation as well. But here's the problem Peter had become a Christian but still thought as a Jew. Peter had become a Christian but still thought. As a Jew. And according to Jewish thinking, God did not save Gentiles as Gentiles. They had to become Jews first. And I'm not sure if you caught it, but God has already been at work in Peter in this area. Do you remember what we're told at the very end of chapter 9? Here's verse 43. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. When Peter went to Joppa, he stayed in the home of Simon the tanner for a season. A normal Jew wouldn't have anything to do with such a person. He was a tanner. Do you know what that means? He dealt with dead animals to make leather, to make dead animal goods. The Jews saw dead bodies, dead animals as unclean and anybody who dealt with them as unclean. In fact, Simon the Tanner lived in Joppa close to the coast, close to the shore away from everyone in the town. He was isolated. He was put off because of his profession. But here's what we know. Simon the Tanner was a Christian brother. It was not right For him to be rejected and ignored and put off by the Jews. So Peter made it okay in his mind to stay with him. And he stayed with him for a season. This was another experience in which God was beginning to break down those barriers. To break down Peter's defenses. As I said earlier, we are dealing with the greatest ethnic dispute scenario the world has ever seen. The prejudice and bigotry between Jew and Gentile. We have never seen anything like this in our lifetime. We think it's bad, but it's not compared to this. These people hated each other. Underscore the hated. They didn't want anything to do with each other. They wouldn't even cross thresholds of each other's homes. If a Gentile stepped on a piece of property, the Jews saw that property as unclean and could not step on that property. Deep-seated bigotry, prejudice existed between these two nations. Let me make something clear, though. The problem was not that God did not save Gentiles. God did save Gentiles. In the Old Testament, Gentiles became saved. But it was in the context of those Gentiles becoming, what? Jews. People that come to mind are Rahab and Ruth. They were once of different nations of the Gentile nation and they entered into the Jewish nation. Let's break down the vision that Peter had. The vision of the sheet was intended to show that God was not calling the Gentiles unclean and that Gentiles could come to Christ without having first passed through the very narrow door of Judaism. He showed Peter in this vision, there is no such thing now of clean and unclean people groups. And he did it miraculously in this vision showing animals. What's the significance of that? Peter was a Jew. He followed the dietary restrictive laws that we find in the book of Leviticus. He was practicing what is known as the law of kashrut. He was kosher. When he went to Waffle House, he said, hold the bacon. Peter never ate anything that was unclean, that was stated in the Scriptures. Peter had always eaten kosher. He was devout in this area, and most, if not all, Jews were. Another little side note. Animals coming down from heaven itself. I get often asked by kids, are animals in heaven that came out of heaven? So, a little side note for you there, if you're ever talking to kids about that. Because inevitably, your prayer request from a kid will be, pray for my cat or my dog. Tell them that animals came out of heaven. God used that in a vision. Was God contradicting himself here through this vision? Have you pondered that? Was God contradicting himself in this vision? He had, he had, he's the one who established these laws. Why is all of a sudden these aren't in place anymore? I would answer no. God was not contradicting himself because the original intent and the original purpose of these dietary restrictions was to make the Israelites distinctive among other nations. It was to make them stand out. With Christ coming to the world, this purpose, this season for this law now ended. Jesus declared foods clean, if you recall, in Mark 7, verse 19. So, did Peter understand the vision? No, not at first. Look at how he responds. When Peter first had the vision, and was told to kill and eat, Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. You see what happened there? Some people, commentators, preachers, would be very, very harsh on Peter here. I'm going to give him some grace. I relate to Peter a lot. Peter thought this was a test. Peter thought this was a test. He thought there was a a vision coming down. Oh, I need, I'm going to pass this test. No, I'm not going to eat anything clean or, or, or unclean. I'm not going to do that, Lord. Peter wasn't being defiant here, is what I'm trying to communicate. He was being faithful to what he knew and understood. When you've done something for 20, 30 years, however old Peter was in this time, you can't just stop it. Or if you're devout to it, you're not going to, at least not instantly. So did Peter understand the vision? Not at first. Did he come to a place of understanding that there are groups of clean and un- unclean people that there are not unclean people? Well, we need to move on to the next section. If we go to Acts chapter 10, verses 17 through 23, we read these words. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole world, whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Verse 23, so he, being Peter, invited them in to be his guest. There's our answer. There's our answer. In these verses we see Peter's meeting with the messengers and we are given the answer we're looking for. Peter had gotten the point of the vision and he invited the Gentile men into where he was staying. God had called these men clean and since God called them clean, he was not going to call them unclean. He had no right to. He had no place to. He had to break down the barriers, overcome his prejudice, overcome his bigotry. He now no longer saw the Gentiles as unclean people. God divinely intervened in Peter's life and he has to do that with us too. And we have to strongly fight some of our inclinations, some of our sinful inclinations to look on another people, another nation as anything less than us. Peter had gotten the point of the vision. And so now we move on to Acts chapter 10 verses 24 through 35. This is going to round us up. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called Together, his relatives and close friends. Isn't that good? Cornelius was ready. He was ready to hear this message that God was going to give to him through Peter. He wanted his close friends, he wanted his relatives there. He's got a crew of people at this place. What an amazing opportunity Peter's walking into. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, and Cornelius Cornelius fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Another reason we say Cornelius wasn't saved. He still worshiped a man. He did it in reverence and respect, but no Christian worships other men. And Peter told, here's how Peter responded, but Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he sent him in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you have sent for me. And Cornelius said four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Is acceptable to Him. Here's some reflections on this passage. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 35. Tremendous things happen when God prepares the hearts of both the messenger and the hearer. Tremendous things happen when God prepares the hearts of both the messenger and the hearer. When it comes to the communication of God's Word, of course the messenger must be prepared. Of course we must be prepared in what we're going to say. We need to be prayed up. We need to be studied up. But it's just as important of the hearer to be prepared as well. This is when really good and godly things happen. When the hearer and the messenger are both ready. Want to hear a good message at church? If so, the best way is to come with a prepared heart. To be receptive ground. Side point here. Notice what both Cornelius and Peter were doing when God prepared them. What were they doing? They were in prayer. In and through prayer is where God divinely leads people to new avenues of ministry for their lives. And by the way, this isn't mystical. Some people put a mystical spin on this. It's not mystical. This is real. God moves and works through us in our prayers. I can't thank those enough who prayed for me to be able to overcome that migraine headache It is very, very manageable now, and I think that's only through the power of prayer. Many people are praying for me, and I thank you for that. God moves in prayer, prayer works. Here we go, reflection. As Christians, we reject prejudices. Something we draw from this passage. As Christians, we reject prejudices. We know prejudices are wrong, and we need to fight against them. Perhaps every day we have to fight against prejudice. In fact, as Christians, there's no room for prejudice, or bigotry. There's no room for it. Look at verses 34 and 35. I think it helps us clear up this point a little bit. Peter opened his mouth, said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. God shows no partiality. God shows no favoritism. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe God doesn't show favoritism? I think this is the bigger point of what Peter was trying to communicate, what Luke was trying to communicate in these verses. Favoritism is a little different than prejudice. It's just a little different. We must come to a place in our thinking where we see that God doesn't play favorites. The Jews thought this way, and that's why Peter used that wording in the verses we just read. The Jews thought they were God's favorite. We have to fight against prejudice. We have to fight against God placing favorites on people. This isn't true. What we must never forget is that if God has shown favoritism, none of us, not one, would have ever become Christians. If God showed favoritism, no one would have ever become Christians. Christians, no one would be saved. Therefore, we must never show favoritism in our presentation of the message. And we must never only present the message of the gospel to a certain people because we believe they are the ones that need the gospel because they are the favorites of God. It's just not true. The gospel is for all who will come to Jesus. God does not have favorites. The gospel is for all who will come to Jesus. I love the commentator, preacher, James Montgomery Boyce, what he says here. Whenever you see yourself not as the clean animal, but the unclean animal, not as the attractive beast, but as the creeping thing, as one who by the grace of God got into that sheet and is pronounced clean by the sheer grace of God in Jesus Christ, then you are ready to open your heart and arms to the other people. And it does not make any difference who they are. God does not show favorites. If you got in, if you got in, the gospel must be for everybody. If I got in, the gospel's for everyone. I'm a wretched sinner. The Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest Christian to ever live other than Jesus himself, said, I am the chief of sinners. We have to believe that also. If I have the gospel, everyone can have the gospel. In the verses that follow, Peter goes on to preach the gospel to everybody in Cornelius' household. And it's amazing what happens. They come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and the gospel is spread to the Gentile nations. Barriers have been broken down in this passage. What an amazing thing we see here. And we thank God for that. And in the coming weeks, these passages will be broken down in a little bit more detail. So here's our response to what we've heard today. Here should be our response to what we have heard today. And we draw this from Acts 9, 32 through 43. If I had to summarize one point for what we read earlier in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43, I would say this. If you are alive and know Jesus Christ as your Savior, God is not finished with you. There is still a purpose for you. There is still a plan for you. There is still much work to be done. If you are still here, God still has something for you as He did for Peter. Peter will begin to slowly fade out of the picture and the Apostle Paul will come into play in, later book, in the later in the book of Acts. But Peter wasn't done. He was still doing what God called him to do. Peter wasn't the chief apostle to the Gentiles. He was the chief apostle to the Jews. But God used Peter to break down and to open the door to the Gentiles. Lastly, God shows no favorites. Neither should I. God shows no favorites. Neither should I. The gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for everybody. The band is going to make their way up. And as they do, I want to read for you what... Some things I thought would be good challenges for us this week. Challenges for us this week in thinking about this this word. One, spend time reflecting on the goodness of God and how He orchestrated the people and events in your life that brought you the gospel and salvation in Jesus. Sorry. Think about your life what God did for you to save you. The people He put in place, the events He put in, in your way, God saved you. And it's a miraculous thing that God has worked in our lives and brought us salvation in Jesus and that we have heard the gospel. We are a privileged people. Two, call, write, text, or think about that person who shared the gospel with you and thank them. Call, write, text, or think about that person who shared the gospel with you and thank them. And pray for and leverage opportunities to share the gospel and to make disciples this week can we do that church I sure hope so let me pray for us and after I pray the band will will sing and if you want to respond to today's message myself and a couple of other pastors will be down here at the front waiting for you waiting to pray with you if you want to respond today let's pray father I thank you so much for your word it's your word that cleanses us And brings us to the salvific knowledge of Jesus Christ. Who died on the cross for our sins. Who made a way for us to be saved. Thank you Lord. Thank you God for for creating us. For divinely creating us. And sometimes divinely coming into our lives to change our perspectives. And to help us see things that we didn't see before. Father help us to eliminate all bigotry. All prejudice that we have against other people. God forbid, any prejudice or bigotry we have prevents us from sharing the gospel with someone. Help us to fight these inclinations. Father, help everyone see, help all of us see that you're not done with us and there's still work to be done. Every day we wake up, there is work to be done for your kingdom. Thank you for what you did in Peter's life and may we follow Peter as Peter followed you. Father, thank you for opening the door of the gospel and bringing the gospel to the Gentile nation. All of us in here, perhaps all of us, are Gentiles. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you for this passage that showed us how that happened. I pray, Lord, we let what we have learned today sink into our lives and that we live based on these things we've learned and let it change us. Father, we love you. Thank you for this time. Might it have been a blessing to us and might it have brought you glory. We love You, Father. And it's in Your precious name we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend The agonies of Calvary You, the perfect hope to your son and drink the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Wants you in me now see table jesus man.